Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. I'm Paul Colgan, director at CT Group. I'm here, as always, with James Whelan of VFS Group. How are you now, Paul? Uh, joining us from Amsterdam is Ken Vexler, managing director and chief investment officer at Acumen Management. How are you, Ken? Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Colgan. I'm well, sun's out, and we're talking bonds. So what could be better? We are uh, We are recording this in Sydney on Thursday, um, the 25th of February. Now, one of the first things I learned about financial markets when I started looking at them in uh, detail about eight years ago now was a simple maxim, the trouble always starts in the bond markets. Essentially, when you're looking for trouble in financial markets, look for big moves in bond prices. This week, we have seen something that probably fits that bill. Now, with rates as low as they are, it's far from a major shift in the cost of credit globally, but it's fair to say the beast has been stirring. Rates on 10-year US Treasury bonds, which I saw this week referred to as being the most important price point in the global financial system, rose rapidly at the start of this week. Uh, and on the last episode of the Bit Show, Bip Show, uh, recorded a handful of days before that sell-off, Kit Jukes, the world-renowned global strategist from uh, Societe Generale, said that what mattered with rates rising was the speed at which it happened. Now, certainly there have been some major jumps in bond yields this week, and a helpful reminder for both veterans and newbies um, that yields rise when prices Full. Yep. Everybody got that? You got that, James? Write it down. <laughs> and the <laughs> other way around too. You, you okay with that, Kent? I'm drawing pictures as we speak. It's Carry on. confusing. That's it. You said but, once and that's it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So look, with, with longer term uh, rates rising rapidly this week, bond markets selling off, it's a bit serendipitous because our guest who we've been trying to get on the show for some time is Belinda Chung a credit strategist at the Global Markets Division at the Commonwealth Bank. Belinda, welcome to the BIP Show. Thank you very much. Very it's great happy. to have you here. Um, Belinda was se- uh, previously a senior economist and manager at the RBA, uh, where she worked on issues like bank funding and bond trading. And now she's doing global and domestic macro research at CBA. Uh, I know we've been trying for a while, so it's great that we can finally make it happen. I've also been told that we're probably going to get schooled here a bit, <laughs> uh, or at least provided with a serious education. So let's start with... Uh, what happened this week? There's been a big sell-off. Uh, US and Australia in 10 years, their cousins from other countries uh, saw rates rising pretty quickly. So so what's going on? Yeah, well, even just today, um, Aussie yields uh, rose um, quite rapidly um, and hit a two-month high in the three-year. And that's really important because the Reserve Bank is trying not to make three-year go anywhere from 0.1%. Um, so they're really trying to stop that uh, rise in yields. Um, and as you point out, it has been a pretty rapid rise over the past uh, couple of weeks. Um, so, yeah, it's a, been a pretty interesting time in bond markets. Uh, 
It has. So let's just go back to this thing of the the the, the ten basis points mm-hmm. um, for for because uh, this is the RBA's stated very clear policy. Mm-hmm. We are going to hold the three year rate at ten basis points, mm-hmm. and it's Thursday Thursday the twenty fifth, and it's at what trading at um, four uh, four basis points above um, that right. Somewhere in that range, yes. Yeah, so um, it's like 14 basis points or something. You could blame our Kiwi cousins because uh, they came out um, this morning with a statement saying that housing prices, the increase in housing prices uh, in New Zealand will need to be taken into account when um, setting monetary policy decisions. Um, it, I kind of read the statements and I thought, well, that's really interesting. Uh, because to some extent they already do take into account house prices in their financial stability mandate. Um, but this is something sort of different. Um, both the government, the New Zealand government, and the central bank have agreed that house house prices now need to be taken into account when making monetary policy decisions. Um, and that's that's completely different to thinking about it just in the financial stability mandate sense. Yeah, isn't it, um, James? This is something that you like to talk about, which is that grey line uh, between uh, government policy and central banking policy becoming a little bit... It's blurred. It used to be, you know, well, fiscal's over here and, you know, uh, economic policy settings generally over there and then the, the central bank does something over there. But what's happening in New Zealand they came to, today yeah. is different. They, ca- yeah. they came, yeah, obviously they came together pretty closely during the GFC. Let's just take a second now, Belinda, why is that important to us listening to this now? The, 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 the NZ taking mm-hmm. house prices into account. Well, I guess um, NZ housing market's been pretty hot, mm. um, more than, rising more than 15% last year. Yeah, exactly, me too. Um, <laughs> and I think we're seeing something similar in Australia um, that, you know, we kind of all started off last year, um, you know, at the start of the pandemic going, oh my goodness, housing prices, we're going to face a crash. But clearly that did not pan out. Um, so we are seeing uh, increasing housing prices and pretty much most major forecasters are saying, look, we're going to see even bigger increases in house prices this year uh, in Australia. So what does the Reserve Bank do in that in that situation? Do they look at house prices um, or do they look at the lending supporting uh, housing and assess how risky that lending is? Um, so there is a really big distinction between thinking about whether the Reserve Bank is going to target house prices and that growth in house prices or whether they're going to target risky lending supporting that increase in house prices. Uh, which can I, can I just jump in there quickly? Sorry. I mean, basically, I, I woke up to all this news, right, and I woke up to look at some charts and, and see all the price action and obviously the Kiwi bonds and then subsequently what happened in Australia. But, look, what the Kiwis have done is essentially gone out and explicitly, to my mind, and please, all of you correct me if I'm wrong, Explicitly given, a, you know, a mandate or instruction to both arms of of public policy as to what they're going to do and how they're going to account for the housing market. Australia's essentially been doing that, or the RBA, to my mind, essentially been doing that tacitly and implicitly by leaning on over the course of the last probably three years, leaning on and off, APRA for the, for the various macro approve, the loan to value regs, the the. You know the the risky. Uh, I've forgotten all of a sudden the, the name specifically for it, but you know the loans which they're willing to approve and not approve. Um, so implicitly, Australia's been doing that. The, the the for me the price action today in 
in say the three-year part of the curve and, and, and bits around it, two years even, in Australia, to me that just screams of, oh, hey, look what New Zealand's doing and look what's happening generally in the last 10 days, two weeks and rates globally. It's an excuse to get out of a market that, you know, they've been, well, not get out of the market, but, but basically been worried about staying long off. So they started selling out. I mean... I don't, is, the, is the RBA really going to go down the same road as, as the Kiwis? Oh, I don't really so. think so. I think the no, Reserve exactly. Bank, yeah, very has very clearly stated that it is really concerned about thinking about the lending supporting house prices mm, rather mm. than the house prices themselves. And yeah. they're not really too concerned about um, targeting asset price bubbles. That's not really quite what they're after. They're really after thinking about financial stability because right now it's so important that the banking system is um, stable and can transmit their unconventional monetary policy. Um, it's, it's really crucial. Do you want to go down to that route? You just said um, if, if, someone, if, if a guest on the show says unconventional anything, then I'm going to ask for a little bit more information. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Lots of syllables, so a bit of an explanation. But basically, you know, the Reserve Bank used to just um, press its big red button and change the cash rate target and then everything would sort of flow through to all the other interest rates in the economy just by changing that one um, target uh, interest rate, okay? At low, at low interest rates, where you're basically operating at the effective lower bound, that's a technical nerdy term, um, you know, changes in the cash rate target do not um, create the same stimulatory effects that you would otherwise see. So that's why... The Reserve Bank and lots of other central banks have decided to employ unconventional monetary policy. And there's a whole um, heap of of, uh, unconventional tools that can be deployed, Um, you know, quantitative easing, forward guidance, asset, uh, uh, I'm sorry, extended liquidity operations and things along those lines. So it's just something that we, I I really want to get into the weeds of, Mm. Um, uh, and I want to spend a bit of time on that later in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think one of the things that I want to make sure we cover off before we get into that is a, a bit more detail on what exactly hap- has been happening this week. Yes. Um, because yeah. uh, let's get straight it, it is to a about big, the RBA. big story in markets. Yeah. Let's get yeah. straight to about what the RBA, like, let's, are we talking today? This week. RBA, RBA purchasing, purchasing this week. No, 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 oh. no, no, no. The, the, the sell-off and rising rates around the world. Oh, yeah. um, Led by the SEPOs mainly and then everyone joining the party. Yeah, yeah. So so, so there's, there's this issue with um, rates rising and there's two ways of looking at it. Maybe it's good news and maybe it's a way of, signaling trouble like i said at the start of the show you know if you're looking for trouble always look in the bond markets if there's a tantrum in there then um there might be trouble on the horizon on the other hand the other perspective is people are enthusiastic about their recovery and they kind of think well i can take some money out of that less less risky asset and put it into something more risky because they see growth coming and inflation following as a result so Tell me how how do we think about this? Yeah, absolutely. So, look, taking a bit of a step back and thinking just from today where yields rose um, quite sharply, um, what we're seeing is that 
I guess there's expectations that globally the clouds are lifting, um, that economic recovery is on the way, um, that this vaccine optimism is leading to um, reopening of the economy and combined with you know, almost $2 trillion of US stimulus, um, it's a pretty exciting time for inflation expectations, um, which are really taking off. So it's that reflation trade, um, which is gathering momentum in a particular big way locally just recently. So yeah, you know, 10-year yields jumped by basically 35 basis points over the past week. Now that's pretty crazy. That's a lot. Exactly, operating at really low rates. Um, and with the sell-off rates, it's, it's become particularly uh, sharp of late because um, basically what, what, it's, what the yield curve is saying is basically markets are pricing in um, a hike in the cash rate target um, prior to 2024, which is what the Reserve Bank just said at its board meeting, is when it is targeting that um, maybe there might be a change in its thinking around its stance of monetary policy. So you've got this confrontation between the market saying what it thinks is going to happen and what the Reserve Bank is saying publicly. That, that's, that's what I want to actually ask. I mean, in, in previous cycles, we've seen, at least as far from, the, from the US side of things, we've seen the market repeatedly force the Fed's hand. Now, it can be argued, you know, it's semantics about whether it has or hasn't, but to my mind, market uh, has priced on a number of occasions uh, rate cuts, rate hikes, predominantly hikes in the last cycle, and the Fed has seemingly given in, um, or at least allowed the market to get away with pricing it, and it gets to the point where the market prices it to an almost certainty, and the Fed has no choice, and does, in fact, act. Is the RBA going to let a similar thing happen? Or, I mean, to my mind, I don't think the RBA is quite so malleable and, 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 and soft. Like, I don't think they're going to let the market dictate exactly what. The fact that the market's now priced, you know, the rates may move, within a month or two of where the RBA said they would anyway in 24, fine, what's a month or two between mates? But will the RBA let the market really price it out, you know, closer into the curve or, or do you think they'll really put their foot on it? That was an amazing question, Ken, because it's a really open question as to how um, long the Reserve Bank will keep buying bonds to hold the three-year yield target at 0.1%. Now, the CBA economics team um, forecasts that the Reserve Bank will remove the three-year yield target in the second half of 2021, probably in August when the Reserve Bank would need to switch from the April 24s to buying the November 24s. That was one of the big shocks actually in the market today, wasn't it? That um, they entered the market, they were buying the two-year bonds when the general expectation was that they might probably buy the three-year bond that expires in 2024, Mm -hmm. but they were buying 23s. So why is the RBA buying two-year bonds when they've told people they're targeting the three-year rate? Um, and, and trying to keep it at uh, 10 basis points? Um, I guess they feel like they're most effective at that point and also they don't really want to cloud their messaging. Um, so you're absolutely right. The Reserve Bank did step in and actually bought $5 billion worth of bonds today, $3 billion um, targeted at that three-year uh, yield curve control, holding that at 0.1, and um, also another $2 billion just for their regular bond purchase program. Right. Um, and of course, just as a reminder, when the RBA steps in and buys bonds, it depresses the rate, right? So if the RBA hadn't been buying those bonds, as a reminder to anybody who's new to this, all of this market, and I was a few years ago, and it is all very confusing. Um, the steepest of learning curves, if, if we're talking about sure curves and these things. So, so there's a few things also I wanted to remind 
everyone as well. The, 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 one of the big plays that's in the markets right now is that if you think, let's just say that you're, you're long bond as, as part of a portfolio manager and you've got a lot of, say, you, you know, you've got a lot of 10-year, I've got a lot of 10-year US treasuries, you know, going on. You, if you think that the yield is going to go up because they're getting sold, then you sell them because you think that they're going to get sold. It's the same as a stock. So you sell them, you preemptively sell them. And so then selling the bonds, then as we've just said, if you sell the bonds and they keep on going down, the yield will go up, which then also it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's the idea, and Morgan Stanley also are big on this as well. Everyone is big on it. Follow the flows on where the, where the bond buying and selling is going on. If there's an outflow that's in the bond market, beware because the yield's going to go up and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's just a little, a, a little tip that's on that about the, about the one goes down and the other goes up. Be aware. Okay, so one of the things that I think is re- really, really important is that the effect that this has, before we get into the plumbing uh, of how the RBA wades into these markets and how it effectively creates money in a lot of ways, uh, one of these really important questions, I think, is um, the way this flows onto other asset prices, right? So um, with all of this happening, how do you, how much do you look to the flow-on effects uh, uh into other markets like global equities, um, tech stocks in particular fell fell this week. Um, so, from your perspective, what is happening there? Yep, yep. I'll probably preface all my remarks by saying I'm not an equity analyst, <laughs> but I did. Spend None of the science, all right. <laughs> but I, I preface everything with that as well. So yeah, yeah, yep. <laughs> but I did do a little bit of a stint on the Reserve Bank's equity desk. So. Um, Drawing back from my experience at that time, um, yes, there is absolutely a knock-on effect to equity valuations in terms of rising um, yields. Um, you know, technically, rising yields should signal to us a healthy, uh, healthier economic outlook and that corporate profits are on the way up, which is great. Um, but higher uh, interest rates also threaten the discounted value of those future cash flows, um, and that's why... Uh, these tech stocks decrease because their cash flows can be quite uncertain. Um, so that's what we're probably seeing in that space. Um, uh, and, yeah, so uh, I think we probably also need to keep in mind that a sharp rise in inflationary pressures is not really awesome for thinking about cost control um, for other companies. So it's not just tech stocks. We just have to keep in mind, hey, look, if there is really a sharp rise in inflation expectations, this could flow on to quite um, big increases in um, the cost of inputs for companies. Well, I too am not an equity analyst, and um, uh, but there's two effects going on there. there so there's input costs mm-hmm. potentially rising uh, for all sorts of things that companies need to uh, buy to produce a product, but then uh, including uh, uh, labour, which I'm, I'm sure most people will be delighted to see the cost of labour rising. I uh, would be. <laughs> yeah. um, but then there's also the other issue, which is the, uh, in terms of valuation of companies, which is the time value of money question. Um, uh, higher inflation means that when you look at those cash flows into the f- future, they're worth less in 10 years, like, and uh, uh, you know, a percentage point, a hundred basis points in uh, rise in uh, the cost of money, or if you want to put it another way, uh, likely inflation mm-hmm. uh, is going to um, depress the value of those cash flows mm-hmm. and therefore depress the current value of that company. 
because it's kind of bought on forward earnings, mm-hmm. etc. Exactly. Uh, okay. Um, so, right. That's us covered on why stocks are down, yields are up. Do you want me to do the, I'll, I'll do the retail thing. The very easy retail thing that's that's on those that if inflation goes up, then then technically a company that makes it, it's always widgets. I don't understand why, but let's just say that Coke sells cans of Coke, and then they, if inflation goes up, then theoretically, in the old days, they can actually sell those cans of Coke for a little bit more. Which then that's why that that that, that stocks that do well in inflationary upswings are those stocks to own in that particular thing. The other thing is that when inflation goes up, that also yields go up, which was what we've seen. So when yields go up then you want to own those value stocks that do well when yields go up. And that's where, the, that's where you want to be in the financials and things like that. That's the really basic, simple thing. Now, whether that plays out is a whole different story, but those are the basic rules of investing in the market, that a company that makes things can actually sell those things for a little bit more because technically the price has risen, although you know we've got a 1,000 people that sit on here and tell us why that's not going to happen. And then the other side is that as yields go up, you want to own those financials and insurers and things like that. And if I can just add in here, this is where it gets kind of interesting to me because that's when you start to look at management. Uh, can you control the cost pressures uh, on the input side and can you um, manage to market your product? Can we just wind it all back and actually look at what's happening in the world, meaning that markets these days have such a reflex action and knee-jerk reactionism that... This was literally going to be my next question to you, Ken. Because that's it, man. I mean, like, you're discounting the here and now to a point. Obviously, we can talk about theoretical models and economic valuations and this and that. And, wow, if, if, if only I had the time and the inclination could be asked. But the reality of it is stocks move these days and have done for a while in this environment so quickly on the preface or on the, on the presumption that rates are going higher because and the rates are going lower than because, therefore, what does it mean to the mattress where everyone has stuck their money under today? And that's it. it it's really genuinely no more complex than that. And I'm, maybe I'm the, I'm the you know, Luddite here when it comes to this sort of thing, but really, it, it's, it's that simple. You know, discount factors and, and rates, that's it. Well, well, well can, can I just put one thing to you, Ken, is that, that um, we've seen the momentum trade in tech stocks, right, for... Years, uh, you know, I, I'm just exhausted even thinking about how long we've seen that. Right, um, the idea that you know you buy something and you keep, buying, you know, but it, and it can happen very very quickly. But also, there's this momentum trade in bonds too, which is sure. And right is and do you think that there's do you think that well there's been the long term momentum trade in in bonds, which is that you know yields are going to go lower, right? Mm. Um, but what's happened in terms of short-term momentum has been actually everybody's selling, so there's this tantrum going on. But it's, it's please don't, please do not call it a tantrum, bollocks. Like, it's not a tantrum, mate. It, all, 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 like, it's, seriously, don't, don't ever call it a tantrum. What, what it, all, it, all it really is, is a market position the same way, the entirety of the market. And it's somebody yelling fire in a crowded theatre with a very narrow door and people trying to get over the top of each other. Whether it's in this asset class or equities or a myriad of other asset classes, this is the nature of markets in the last at least two years. Everyone generally is positioned the same way because there's only ever the one trade. Correlations tend to a perfect positive one. And everyone works on the basis and runs their books that they'll be able to see the turn before everyone else and be able to get out of that door. They'll be able to smell the smoke and see the embers 
before anyone else does in that theatre and they'll be able to run for that door. If they don't, everyone sees the door. Belinda, you go first and then I'm going I'm to do some things. Okay. Go. Yeah. So it. I guess there might be a little bit of that. There might be some traders burned from 2013. Um, I guess also i just point out that we haven't actually seen inflation rise yet. Um, exactly. Thank you. We don't actually need to see yeah. earnings before I'll invest in a company, does it? We, we, don't, <laughs> we, don't, we don't work that way nowadays. We don't work that way nowadays. No, no. Yeah, so, like, honestly, we haven't seen inflation numbers pick up yet. This is all on the basis of inflationary expectations. Um, and qu- quite frankly, the US Fed's saying, look, I mean, like, yes, we do expect inflation to pick up because, of the, A, that's exactly what our policy has been designed to do. And secondly, all the deflationary um, numbers from 2020 is going to drop out of the, like, annual window. Um, and you're going to pick up all these um, inflationary, like, numbers um, as we obviously roll out through the recovery. Um, and, uh, look, you know, the US Fed has explicitly said we are going to look through that short-term volatility in inflation. So don't be scared that we're going to suddenly retract all our stimulus. Ken, I have – and Paul and G'day Belinda, thank you for joining us. Uh, and I, I, the one piece of feedback that I get from people who listen to this show is that I'm a little bit too polite. They don't uh, like me, do they, James? No, they love that. <laughs> That's the one piece of feedback. It's yeah, no, uh, fair enough. They, uh, yeah. they, like, they like me and I think they like me because I'm a little bit too polite <laughs> and I don't push back on some stuff. So, Ken, I'm going I'm I'm to say if you think that Bond sell-off is someone in a, in a cinema yelling fire mm. and everyone trying to head to the exits, I mm. – and I'll, I'll use my strongest tones – I think that you might possibly maybe be incorrect. Sure. <laughs> With all due respect. Look, James, I believe it happened once before, circa 1984-ish, I don't know. But, yeah, fair, I mean, it's happened. We are once. talking, we are talking about, the bond, uh, about the bond market here, and if the yields on the 10-year go up, I'm paying attention. <laughs> now, I'm not, I'm, not, sure. I'm not a smart man. But I, I, I know what to look out for, and when that happens, then I need to be paying attention. And I think that the, the, the flow-on effect from what happens, because that happens, needs to be paid attention to. Keep in mind, this isn't an actual recession. This was a temporary virus recession that all of a sudden everyone just goes back the next day. Well, it's not day. a conventional recession. Yeah, it's not a conventional recession. As And, and shout-out to um, Joe Weisenthal and, and Tracy Alloway on Odd Lots, an, an amazing podcast that, that – and, and Joe, they were talking about the semiconductor uh, shortage, which is going on right now. And Joe, uh, an amazing comment, which was just like, everyone, when, when this recession hit, everyone went and bought computers and uh, yeah. I needed a desk and I needed yeah, yeah. headphones and I needed all of this stuff. I needed a new TV and new monitors and everything like that. If everyone, and, and it was beautiful, if everyone went and bought everything that they bought every time there was a recession, there'd never be a recession this is not an actual real recession, so the recovery is going to be as quickly as it all crashed in March well, last look, year. Look, I'm not an economist, but the, the fact that millions of people um, found themselves out of work in a short space of time probably um, meets the definition for it being a... And then back yeah. in work, look, just as... Yeah. But, but, but bottom line, James, I think we, we are definitely on, on either side of this market, and it comes back to our mutual expectations of inflation and the fact that I believe it's transitory if and when... Um, and you don't, fair enough. 
Uh, I think this move in, in the bond market is exactly as Belinda pointed out. It's based on expectations and nothing concrete. Expectations blown and go in the wind, you know, like yesterday's news. So let's see. Um, has it got a bit more room? Yeah, has it got a bit more room to run? Sure, but I'll take the other side, Chief. Anyway, Belinda, back to you. Uh, it turns out we've got a guest. Uh, can I, Belinda? <laughs> I uh, yeah um, I do, yeah I mean this is almost as um, spicy as that um, that GameStop uh, uh, podcast. That we well, did a few Ken's weeks out there. Ken's out there talking about the bond market as if it's GameStop. You can't. Come on, Ken. Mm, 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 anyway, no, that's, yeah. that's inflammatory. Okay, okay. Yeah. okay. We're all going to settle down. Okay, and uh, we're going to move on to a much bigger picture, which is really, really um, a couple of really big questions. Um, so, Belinda, you were at the RBA for a long time. Uh, you are a recognised expert, I think, in the financial industry, in the financial community here in Sydney uh, on how central banks really work. Um, I've looked at some of your research. Uh, it's, uh, some of it is um, extremely interesting, uh, extremely detailed, um, looking at uh, how banks work, etc. Now, um, how the way central banks really work has been the subject of unprecedented discussion uh, in the past couple of years, right? Um, uh, in the age of what was only a few years ago called unconventional uh, monetary policy, um, and now it's sort of fairly standard uh, monetary policy in advanced countries around the world. Um, so some people call QE money printing. Uh, Jay Powell uh, famously conceded uh, a few years ago that, uh, well, we we print it digitally. Uh, but in your own words, um, can you explain what's happening with when the RBA quote unquote prints money? I absolutely can, and um, I just think you're being incredibly generous. I am just a single person who sits at the nexus of monetary policy and banking, so I can kind of see how it all fits together and how unconventional monetary policy can actually be transmitted to the real economy. Um, so I sit in a really privileged place to be able to um, see that transmission of monetary policy, and that's really exciting um, to see something that, quite frankly – has never been seen in Australia. Like if you think back in 2019 in November, um, right before the pandemic broke out, Phil Lowe, uh, Governor Lowe said, you know, we really don't want to go down this path. Um, and basically 12 months later, here we are doing QE. So, yeah, it's been a pretty amazing ride from a um, central bank watching uh, sort of perspective. Um, so, so how do they do it? Um, yeah, absolutely. So, how do they do it? They literally, <laughs> they literally, um, electronically create money. Um, so they'll say something along the lines of, "Well, we credit a financial institution's account at the Reserve Bank with electronic money." And I guess let's just unpack that a bit and take a couple of steps back. Um, so, you know how you have a bank account. And um, at, you know your salary goes in and pays uh, bills get paid, um, and that all happens with deposits like bank deposits. Well, in that same way that there's bank deposits in bank accounts, your bank has a an account at the Reserve Bank that has something called exchange settlement balances in it, and exchange settlement balances are only um, able to be exchange between financial institutions 
within this ecosystem of exchange settlement accounts. And they all live at the Reserve Bank. Now, because they all live at the Reserve Bank, it's totally okay um, and doable for the Reserve Bank to literally create electronic exchange settlement balances. And that is what is happening when they say, look, we electronically create money. Right. So, they've, uh, so for example, um, uh, Red Bank has uh, a certain amount of money uh, in its exchange settlement account at the Reserve Bank. Uh, and the Reserve Bank can say, well, it's now a billion dollars more. Pretty much. Um, you know, so the actual mechanics is that when the Reserve Bank buys this, say, $100 billion worth of bonds, um, they'll take that asset, the bonds, and they will credit the, a bank's ES account with $100 billion worth of ES balances. Okay, in exchange for those bonds. Um, and against those balances, what the bank will do is raise $100 billion worth of deposits to put in to the bondholder's account who had sold the bond to the Reserve Bank. So that's the magic that happens, that the Reserve Bank can create ES balances and against that, the bank will be able to, a regular commercial bank will be able to raise $100 billion worth of deposits. So then what does that mean for the, for, for the bank, that they've actually been able to take, take that money and then move it on to... Deposit holders. Um, but yes, basically. So it's not really that, that any ES balances leave the Reserve Bank. They always, always stay in the Reserve Bank and can never, ever be lent out in that sense to normal people on the street. Yeah, okay? or, or purchasing things. Exactly. As everyone, everyone always says, oh, it's, it's money that's going to banks, to it's bailing out the banks so they can then buy assets. The, the, the old thinking is still there that thinks that, Central bank money is being used to buy banks to to, to, to actually buy assets. It, has, it is actually still it is actually still very much there. It's just it's basically like sitting on a trust account with the RBA. Um, so I guess really what happens is that um, I guess really what happens is this that it's an IOU that the central bank is giving to um, the commercial bank. Okay, that's that's what it is. In the same way that a commercial bank gives an IOU to you when you have a deposit with them, you can go back to the bank and say, "Give me that money." Right. So, with the ES balance that a bank has, then this is where all of the rest of the financial, everything else flows from in the financial system, mm -hmm. right? Well, so there's a lot of other other different layers to it, I suppose. Yes. But um, and they all have different interest rates and rates that they can command on those deposits, I suppose, if you like. So what's the rate that uh, – can can a bank get uh, um, a deposit rate on its ES balance? It used to. It now lo really? no longer – yes, it used to – interest used to be paid on the central bank balances. Okay, so internationally they're called central bank balances. Um, and, you know, they – did used to pay interest on these balances. However, uh, that has been changed by the Reserve Bank. Back in November, they said, we're going to have a 0% interest rate on these balances. So yes, you can keep those balances at the Reserve Bank in your account, just like you would have a deposit in your bank and have interest accrue to that. But interest doesn't accrue to these balances because the interest rate is literally zero. So the incentive is there for the bank to move that those deposits out into um, other places where... Well, yes, technically, you, 
since the Reserve Bank controls the supply of ES balances to the system, um, you can only move it to another institution. It's a bit like pass the parcel. Right, right. Yes. And ideally, to manage having a zero yielding asset, you would try and offload it to someone else. Um, but it's really hard in this environment of excess liquidity. Um, that, that is the entire point to have excess liquidity. So it's really hard to move those assets. So where do they move them to? How does that start? Is that kind of like the bottom of the like the the, the bank capital stack, if you like, um, or uh, if you know is you know when you ask a bank like how much money do you have? Um, what what is the safest money that you have? Is it um, is it those ES balances? Is that where it starts, or is there a, a more safe? Uh, amount of money that they have somewhere else? Um, I guess how I'd conceptualise it is these ES balances are a form of liquidity and those uh, kind of – let me just – sorry. I'm sorry, I've stuffed it. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> yep. um, okay. So ES balances are basically a form of liquidity. Uh, like this thing about capital is different. So basically you can't really say ES balances are a form of – Safety. It's more like it's a form of funding. It's a different. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that's a really interesting point because I, I, I know I looked at a uh, very complex paper that you uh, wrote when you were at the RBA uh, about the mix of um, RBA funding. Okay. So, and this is obviously something that you've looked at in a, a lot of detail uh, in your career. And it's the mix of funding for banks, right? So, which in some ways, how it. Uh, touches the regular person in the street or the regular investor. Um, uh, it's, you know, the rate that you can bo- – different rates that you can borrow money at for different types of loans, right? So business loan, mortgage, um, uh, et cetera. But it's often a source of confusion. And when the RBA – I remember very clearly when the RBA was cutting rates uh, after the mining boom, um, the banks were arguing at the same time that they couldn't pass on all of those – uh, so they'd cut it at um, uh, uh, 25 basis points ago. Uh, and the banks were arguing, well, we can only pass on 20 basis points of that. Because, and I remember very clearly, Gail Kelly, who was the CEO of Westpac at the time, saying on Q&A that the cost of funding had risen. So um, look, I don't think they've done a very good job over the years of explaining this. Um, but... How has that funding mix changed over the years and how does it all work? It's an enormous question, um, but take as long as you like to talk through it. That's a really good question. Okay, so how I'd say how to approach that is basically by saying um, the cash rate went down during that episode. Why are funding costs increasing? That's really bizarre. And it's because banks are looking at it relative to the cash rate. They're looking at their funding costs relative to their cash rate. Um, And that is why they're going, okay, but I think my funding costs are actually going up because my funding costs aren't going down as much as the cash rate has declined. So that's why they're saying that. Now, you've got to think of banking as a spread business. They go, okay, here's my lending rate that I charge um, borrowers and here's my deposit rate or the cost on my wholesale funds um, and, you know, take the first thing and subtract the funds, funding costs, that that's the return that I get. 
Um, so if my lending rate goes down at the same uh, in step at the same time with the cash rate, but my funding costs don't go down in step with the cash rate by 25 basis points, then really that spread is becoming compressed and that's not so great. And that's that margin, which is which is the, the expression with us. I'll go back to that old, you know, when, when you're investing, uh, margin is a bank's lifeblood. Uh, NIM, we used to, you know, it's the old net interest margin. Yep. It's that difference between... Lending long and borrowing short, and, uh, and and that's the thing. If that gets squeezed, then then you're in trouble. Absolutely. Banks maturity transform. That is pretty much what they do. Is that an acronym? Maturity transform. BM, I thought it was an BMT. <laughs> so, so it's the uh, – let's get into this. The, 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 the horizons on which they borrow and, um, and lend money, mm-hmm. uh, so they secure money in deposits – um, Which is short term, yep. Yep, it's the short term, but then they lend it out. At um, much longer terms. Yeah. Um, so talk about how the prices for those two things interrelate and why it can cause problems for mm-hmm. banks or, or co- cause those kind of weird dynamics uh, that we, you were just talking about where they're not moving in step. Mm-hmm. So it's really awesome for banks when the yield curve is upward sloping and it has um, a fair degree of upward slopedness to it, okay? Because when you lend long, you literally have an interest rate that you're charging that is relatively high compared to the cost of funding um, which you're paying, which is relatively low at the short end. So let's just uh, be t- take a really clear example, 20-year loan um, uh, at 4%. Um, but then you can, you know, short deposit, um, short-term deposit at, well, at the moment, <laughs> uh, a very small amount, half of 1% or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty much that's it. Um, I'd also add to the uh, answer that what the banks are also doing is trying to recoup um, costs that have emerged after the global financial crisis. So after the global financial crisis, what happened was a whole bunch of regulations got put in to say, banks, you need to be a whole lot more safe and you need to be a whole lot more liquid. And the safe aspect came out in the sense that they needed to hold more capital, more more equity. And that's really costly compared to other forms of funding. Um, So uh, that meant they had to recoup that extra cost somewhere. Um, Another thing that they faced was having to hold more liquid assets and having to hold more liquid assets is okay, but not so okay when they yield very low rates of return. So talk to me about the difference. So um, a short-term or a long-term bond, uh, what is the more liquid in that? Is it the short-term bonds are there? Uh, yeah, I guess. But like, I guess really what the regulators were saying were saying, please hold um, – really safe government bonds as opposed to some other asset that is sort of a bit less safe. HQLAs, is that, is that what yeah, they're called? Yeah, that's the special acronym. Try yeah. to avoid acronyms. But, <laughs> yeah. but yes, it's a, it's a mouthful of an acronym, um, but it is trying to say choose the best quality uh, liquid assets that you can um, hold so that you know, in a fire sale you can sell them. Because uh, banks during the financial crisis held, held all this sort of stuff that, you know, they really couldn't offload and turn into liquid assets. Yeah. So um, essentially they're, they're, they're encouraging them to, you know, hold more government bonds uh, in their um, liquid, uh, asset, in their liquid, liquid yeah. asset portfolios. And that might extend then to, um, say, state government bonds and then uh, – 
very reliable, maybe at the top, is this right? Um, um, corporate bonds. So like in Australia, APRA defines what uh, an HQLA is and they've okay. gone, it's literally just Australian government bonds and semi-government bonds. Oh, right. And, and that okay. is it. Yes. Right. And that is it. Um, and look, you know, there's been a bit of um, development here because basically, you know, when they first introduced that regulation, um, the pool of those bonds was so small, okay? If banks went out to buy all those bonds, what would happen is that those markets would become completely illiquid and would defeat the purpose of holding a high-quality liquid asset. So what the central bank did, Reserve Bank said, okay, let's create this thing called the Committed Liquidity Facility. Um, because there was just that lack of government bonds to, to purchase because of the surpluses that were being run. Um, now That, that was very large, wasn't it? Um, um, yes, at yeah. the time. It was uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. Now, that's completely changed. That landscape's completely changed because now there is this huge amount of government issuance, government bond issuance, that is, um, and that committed liquidity facility is no longer really needed and APRA has been decreasing it and decreasing the amount of the committed liquidity facility and is basically saying, well, we can see a time when we can do without it. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Uh, you know, and frankly, it's a bit reassuring that um, uh, the regulator, the prudential regulator, was able, was able to come out and say, well, if we're going to demand this of you in terms of, you know, we're going to, if we're going to demand... Uh, certain requirements of the banks were going to put in place mechanisms that make it practical for yes. that to, for them to be able to bring that to life. Um, so um, let me ask you about um, uh, all of this debt, right? Bonds are all loans, right? Um, have this explosion in um, the – like when you look at global debt to GDP, right, is uh, something like 300%, I think. Um uh, and there's all of these questions about, um, you know, how is all of this ever going to be paid back, et cetera, right? So, and I guess the question is about paying the piper, right? Credit might be cheap, right? Um, but uh, it's, all of this is debt, including for the, for the central bank, mm-hmm. right? That needs to, to get repaid by somebody at some point. Mm-hmm. Okay. So why is it all right for the central bank to expand its balance sheet and put all these loans on its books um, at, the, at, the, uh, at the speed um, that they, they have been doing. Mm-hmm. So I guess right now what the central bank is doing is buying bonds um, and they're doing that and expanding the balance sheet, as you rightly point out. Um, now, they can do this because they can create money electronically out of nowhere, uh, and they have this amazing power to do that. So they have to wield it really carefully um, because they could. Like, there is really technically no limit because the cost of producing electronic money is pretty much nil. Um, now they could, but the issue here is that there are consequences, negative consequences of unconventional monetary policy. So if we live in a low interest rate world for a really long period of time, um, for example, from a banking perspective, it really puts pressure on net interest margins. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, and that obviously uh, leads to lower profitability, which makes our banking system less safe because the banks can't build up those buffers that they need to have to absorb any loan losses. And, of course, during a recession, that's what we face. Um, right now, banks, though, are really well capitalised, um, have built up significant provisions, 
and uh, really actually have managed their loan books pretty well. So non-performing loans have ticked up, but not significantly. So will the the RBA at some point, is the idea that it starts offloading these bonds back into the... Um, into the market. Oh, I'd love to know what the Reserve Bank um, thinks in terms of its <laughs> underlying program, um, yeah. but I probably might not speculate on that. <laughs> um, yeah. um, so I guess back to your question about like, can the Reserve Bank do this? Um, can the Reserve Bank just uh, increase well, at its... At this speed, yeah, it's, yeah. it's at this, you know, the, you know, billions of dollars week mm. after week. I guess that they'd say, look, we're doing it now because it's what is required now. Okay, we need to keep borrowing costs low now to stimulate... Um, and, uh, to help the, you know, the bridge metaphor, like let's help the economy to the other side of the bridge, et cetera, et cetera, by keeping borrowing costs low. Now what they can do is create conditions conducive to loan, loan growth basically, okay? Um, but they can't actually force anyone to take out a loan, okay? So you can't actually create demand, but you can create conditions conducive to um, a pickup in demand. And so that's what they're doing. But they're also recognising that it's actually – public sector balance sheets that also need to come online here to actually create demand, literally, by, you know, um, yeah, yeah. all the things that they have said in the budget. Coming if up it's less projects. costly for the government to borrow money. That's right. Yeah. It really helps. And so yeah. that's what the Reserve Bank has been really focusing on, keeping that cost of borrowing low. Yeah, so so basically the government it means that the government is less worried, basically, but saying, well... Um, you know, we don't need to reduce the jet debt as quickly uh, and we're okay um, going to the market to issue some uh, bonds um, uh, because we know that the rate is going to be sustainably at a low level. The, the interest that we'll pay on that will be a sustainably low, low level for a certain period of time. Mm, I think there's a... Uh, yep. Sorry, I was just going to jump in and just going to ask, how much of that is externally related in terms of, say, you know, the, the market or the world's perception of the sovereign's credit worthiness, you know, ratings and whatnot? I mean, ratings agencies are worth, you know, not a whole lot these days. But, you know, how, how much of that is market perception of, well, we actually don't think that the, the fiscal situation is sustainable or it is or the government's good for its debt, therefore, you know, basically publicly traded yields. So... How does that figure into the equation? Um, I think that it is really important. I think what you're um, alluding to there is keeping that separation between um, debt management and um, monetary policy. Um, yeah. And it's really important and the central bank think it's really important. All central banks think it's really important to keep that separation because it means that they can um, actually implement monetary policy without having to think about what the government is doing too much. They don't have to think about the size of their spending um, when they're trying to figure out what they want to do and how they want to calibrate interest rates. So this was this this leads me on to this question that I wanted to ask you that the rationale for buying bonds in the secondary secondary market, right? So uh, when the government issues bonds, it sells it to a handful of banks that are able to buy uh, those bonds. So the, the Australian Treasury sells it to JP Morgan and a few others. Um, and those bonds might, you know, circle about the market, um, uh, you know, from uh, changing hands uh, maybe hundreds, thousands of times um, before the RBA sees that, you know, it's a 2024 bond uh, and, I, um, you know, today we've, we're buying 2024s, right? Um, or as they were doing today, 2023s, um, to, to the surprise of many. Um, but, but what is the rationale there uh, for doing it, buying it back out of that market rather than just buying it off the government and saying, 
um, yeah, we, we'll we, we'll take that bond. Mm-hmm. And that is a very good question, and it's a very nuanced sort of argument. The Reserve Bank is saying, if I buy it um, on the open market, then what I'm doing is changing the cost of financing because I am increasing demand for the bond, which pushes pushes up the price of the bond and decreases the yield. However, if they literally went out and bought it um, at the primary auction, then they'd literally be sort of underwriting what the government is doing in terms of its spending. And they really don't want to do that because they want to have that separation between um, spending decisions and um, how it's financed. That is a government responsibility. That is not the central bank's responsibility. The central bank's responsibility is simply to think about monetary policy. Right, and and so that affects uh, interest rates. How right? So um, the interest rate on the bond. Um, if the government and the RBA were to come to an agreement, say that um, the ten year is going to be at one percent for for a certain number of years, uh, this is all very hypothetical, right? So, um, but what would that do to the money markets? Um, yeah, like I think. Really, a lot of the discussion has been around, well, what if um, the Reserve Bank buys these bonds and just sort of crosses them out and, you know, the government never has to pay them back and that sort of thing. Um, And I guess the real story there is basically there's no, as um, Governor Lillex to put it, there's no free lunch. Someone always has to pay. It's it's not free money. So how do we get out of all this, Uh, all this debt, all that kind of stuff? Is it just economic growth? Ideally, what we'd like to see is that... um, to be able to repay this debt because we are borrowing against future income to make that is to see that future income be as strong as possible okay and you can make that future income as strong as possible by um, being more productive um, being making sure that your labor force is is really skilled etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's all those sorts of things um, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, look, thank you for taking the time. Uh, I think we probably could have gone on for about two or three hours uh, uh, on this. Um, Belinda Chung, uh, credit analyst at, uh, at, um, at CBA's Global Markets team, thanks so much for coming on the web show. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on iTunes at The Bip Show. We're on Twitter. It's at the underscore bip underscore show. And we're on Facebook too. Just search The Bip Show. We're all there on Twitter individually at Colgo, at James Whelan 42 and at Ken Vexler. Uh, Belinda is far too smart to be on Twitter. Um, don't forget to hit subscribe and rate the show. We love those five-star ratings. Thanks, everyone. Uh, James, that was good fun. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Belinda. Thank you. Uh, and Ken, thank you for uh, joining on and uh, thank you for describing my uh, description of the uh, bond sell-off today as a tantrum, as bollocks. Yeah, I'm here to help uh, Colgo any time and, and every time. And Belinda, thank you very much for joining. Thanks, Ken. <laughs> okay. The show is produced by Eamon Connolly. Thank you, Eamon. No worries. Good chat. <laughs> Good chat. And Rick Salter. Thanks, Rick. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening.